chapter 1, verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Uh, well, thank you, Katie. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it has been written for us. Uh, and so as we turn to this tricky passage, we ask that uh, in your grace and mercy, you might remind us of why you are wonderful and good and how your son is worthy of all praise. Amen. Uh, well, can I ask you please to make sure you've got a Bible open in front of you there on page 1,699. We're going to spend a fair bit of time in the second half of the chapter. Uh, can I ask you also to make sure you've got a leaflet, a handout open in front of you. You'll see on the inside cover there's a pretty detailed outline there for what I'm going to speak about. Uh, there's a couple of blanks for you to fill in, so there should be pens around that you can use. Uh, that will help you to keep concentrating. And at the end, uh, if we have time, we'll get to a discussion question uh, like last week that I'll get you to share with the people around you. Uh, my confession, actually, as we start, is that I've been wrestling with this passage all week, and to be honest, it's got me a little bit stumped. Uh, I hope that doesn't make you nervous, by the way. Uh, I, but I've always said that I'll be upfront and honest with you, and so, despite my best efforts, I want to say sometimes scripture is just hard to understand. Uh, let me tell you what's, what I found hard about it. I can't quite work out what the problem is that Paul is trying to solve in Titus chapter 1. Now, obviously, it's about some kind of false teaching in the church, but it's not exactly clear what that false teaching is. And, uh, for the record, 
none of the very many commentaries I've opened this week are 100% certain either, which is sort of comforting, I suppose. But what it means is that it's been really tricky trying to work out how to apply this passage to us today. Uh, how will we ever know if we are in the same situation as what Paul is writing to Titus about? And I suppose I could guess or I could speculate. But since teaching something not true seems to be the very thing that Paul is warning against, uh, I'll try and show what we can learn about how to respond to any kind of false teaching. Uh, whatever it is. Uh, The story so far in Titus, you'll see there at the top left, uh, Titus is to appoint elders in every town, chapter 1, verse 5, elders who love what is good, chapter 1, verse 8, and who hold firmly to the trustworthy message so that they can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute refute those who oppose it, chapter 1, verse 9. Unfortunately, when you get to chapter 1, verse 10, Have a look at chapter 1, verse 10. It reveals that there were many false teachers in those churches on Crete. Many false teachers who, verse 16, at the very end of the passage, (coughs) um, who were unfit for doing anything good. That's a pretty stark contrast with the kind of church leaders that Titus was seeking to appoint. I remember verse 8 again, those who love what is good. You recall that I said last week that in just three short chapters, Paul uses the words for good nine times. So the idea of goodness is very important. This, verse 16, it's the one use of good that's framed negatively about false teachers who are unfit for doing anything good. And as I thought about it, well, who on earth would ever be like to, like to be known like that? Who would ever like to have that kind of reputation? unfit for doing anything good at all. Well, let's see what's going on. Come through to verses 10 through 14, the first part of the passage. Let me read it again. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced, because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Well, point one then on your handout, top left. What were the false teachers teaching? How were they opposing the trustworthy message as it's been taught? Well, as I've already said, our major challenge today, I think, is that we just don't know entirely for sure what was being taught. There are a few clues, of course, uh, and I've printed them there on your handout on the left, just so you can see them laid out in one spot. Apparently, they were full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 14, they spoke of Jewish myths or the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. And over in chapter 3, verse 9, which we haven't got to this week, but I printed there for you in your handout, apparently they spent much time talking about foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law that are unprofitable and useless. So what was going on? Well, 
Taken together, I think there are three possibilities, and I've listed each of them there for you on the handout. Three possibilities of this false teaching. Firstly, uh, what I've called silly speculation. Silly speculation. Uh, this is a reference to some of the things that were spoken of. Meaningless talk and deception. Jewish myths. Foolish controversies and genealogies that are unprofitable and useless. A silly speculation. It's the image, I think, of esoteric nonsense that quite frankly wastes everyone's time and is pointless and unedifying. Now, this, of course, was not confined to that period of history. It's continued throughout the ages. Medieval scholars, Christian medieval scholars, love to debate all sorts of nonsensical philosophical questions. And one of the most famous ones was, how many angels do you think you could fit on the head of a pin? A ridiculous question, but there's been decades arguing over these kinds of things. And of course, we're no different today. Think of the modern-day youth group uh, that loves to pose the curly, the curly questions for their leaders. Questions like, well, if God is all-powerful, can he make a stone that's too heavy to pick up? Jewish myths and genealogies that are referred to there, if they sound a bit bizarre to our ears, then don't dismiss them too quickly. You see, the Jews at the time, they loved to imagine backstories for their favourite Old Testament characters. Those are the myths that they would come up with. And to be honest, we're no different today. We're fascinated by origin stories. Everybody loves to find out where we've come from. Uh, witness the pain of those who've been dislocated or, or alienated from their ancestral roots. But conversely... Look at the sheer delight of those who discover that they can trace their lineage. Now, the best example, of course, that we're all familiar with here in South Australia, well, it's that somewhat disproportional pride taken at being free settlers here. So, first possibility is that Paul is reacting to silly speculation, but to be honest, what he says, uh, it seems pretty harsh given that. So the second possibility there on your handout is that the false teaching is about unsound doctrine. Unsound doctrine. Now, this draws on the reference there to the circumcision group and arguments and quarrels about the law. Can I say, this is perhaps the most serious of false teaching. Uh, it probably is a reference to the dilemma faced by early converts to Christianity from Judaism. You see, as they became Christian, the question was, arose, what about all those Jewish traditions and practices that they had fiercely preserved despite centuries of persecution? Were they all now completely redundant and irrelevant now that they'd become believers? Or did those practices still have some value post-conversion? Uh, perhaps as a way of demonstrating godliness, of being a better kind of believer. Well, it's possible. The problem here is that we don't know exactly what the circumcision group was teaching. We only have Paul's reference to them. And there were so many variations in the world at the time. But I trust you can see that this is the most serious challenge of all. Because it's actually a frontal attack on our core Christian conviction that ultimately... We are saved by what God has done for us, not by anything that we try to do for him. 
Now, ironically, this very kind of teaching actually encourages the outcome that it's trying to prevent. This kind of teaching actually leads to what's called licentiousness or libertarianism or, put simply, loose living. It goes like this. If I'm saved by keeping the law, then once I've met the bare minimum, I'm free to do anything I want in a completely selfish kind of way. I don't need to have my heart changed or transformed one bit. Uh, This is seen best, I think, in the sentiment, uh, if there's no specific prohibition, then you can't stop me from doing it. Here's the blank that I'd like you to fill in. This kind of legalism is easy because we don't have to think, and yet it's ineffective. It's easy because we don't have to think, but at the same time it's ineffective because it doesn't change our heart one bit. And what's worse, it actually undermines evangelism. That's because most people who aren't Christian already think that Christianity is just a whole series of rules and regulations that you have to keep somehow to appease an angry God. That's hardly appealing. And yet what they see is how Christians never succeed in their rule-keeping, which means that our failures hardly commend Christ. Now, all of us, I think, all of us, I think, we know that we're guilty of this at times, of thinking that God only cares for strict legal adherence and not a genuine heart change. Jesus was particularly scathing of the Jewish leaders at the time for meticulously doing things like tithing their herb gardens as offerings, whilst conveniently ignoring the bigger questions of social justice. They're still the same today. I'll give you an example from modern-day Judaism. Uh, I grew up in Sydney, and in Sydney, in the great synagogue, uh, which is there for the Jews, um, the elevators in the great synagogue are designed so that on the Sabbath, to enable them to avoid breaking the command, thou shalt do no work, instead of uh, you selecting the floor when you get in the elevator, on a Sabbath, the lift is designed to open and close the doors on every single floor as it goes up and down. Also, they can say, we haven't broken the law about doing no work. Now, if that seems a little bit absurd, to us, we Christians are no different. We can think that if we give more to the ministry appeal, or if we sign up for another service roster at church, or if we just read another Christian book, that that means that we can avoid the need for personal repentance from private ungodliness, as if somehow our good deeds have offset all our failings. Now, one of the reasons why this might have been going on in Crete at the time is because of the wider cultural context, which was, to be frank, Cretan society was incredibly immoral, incredibly loose. Uh, Look at verse 12, uh, which I'm sure you smiled at. I heard a few chuckles as it was read out. Verse 12, or one of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Paul is quoting a Cretan scholar, a fellow by the name of Epimenides from the 6th century BC, uh, and he's quoting a Cretan against themselves. Now, as an aside, can I say that this is a great way to critique a culture? 
the best way to give constructive feedback is from within. Uh, that's because uh, all of us automatically tend to disagree with outsiders uh, just on principle. Let me give you an example. Uh, when we moved here some 18 years ago from New South Wales, uh, where I grew up on rugby, uh, the game they play in heaven, uh, one of the first questions I was asked was, so which of the two AFL teams was I going to support? Now, it's fair to say that I copped a bit of flack for my response. My response was, neither. I think Aussie rules is stupid. I probably shouldn't have said the second part of that. Uh, for the record, it's okay. I have decided to support the Swans uh, whenever they occasionally win. Uh, that's how much I care. My point is that ever since, I have met many local South Australian-born people who also dislike footy, but they never get picked on. The best way to critique a culture is from within. And so one indicator of the level of immorality on Crete is that, in fact, a whole new word was developed for the word liar. Uh, the Greeks, actually, they invented a new word for the word lie. Do you know what the word was? The word was called kritizo. Kritizo. So to be a Cretan was to be known as a liar in general, which is an incredible indictment on a society. Actually, if you think about it, Greek culture was often like... Think of Zeus and the many Greek gods who at best were described as being mischievous, at worst they were outright deceptive. And then look at the amazing contrast with the God of the Bible. Go back to Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. The hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie. The suggestion is that if this is the kind of society uh, and culture in Crete at the time, it's entirely possible that a similar kind of indolent godlessness had crept into the churches as well. But we can't be 100% sure. And so here's the third suggestion about the false teaching. We've talked about silly speculation. We've talked about unsound doctrine. The third possibility, I think, is what I've called you must do what I tell you to do. This is the teaching given by church leaders, false teachers, exercising an overbearing and oppressive control over the flock. Uh, the reason I say that is because of verse 9. Verse 9 uh, speaks of... Um, sorry, not verse 9, uh, is because of uh, verse 14. Verse 14 speaks of paying no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. Uh, when it says that, it actually says just the commands of people who reject the truth. It's a reference, I think, to, the dom to a dominance from authorities that we have sadly seen so often throughout church history in the rise of cults and sects. And some here in this church have only recently, thankfully, escaped from them. And yet... This kind of unthinking compliance of just doing whatever they tell us to do, well, the blank for you to fill in, this kind of unthinking compliance is easy. It's easy because you don't have to take any responsibility for your own actions. You just say, I'm doing what I was told. 
That kind of unthinking compliance is easy, but it's ineffective. So, which of these three types of false teaching was present in Crete? Uh, as I said earlier, despite prayerful reflection this week, I'm just not sure. Uh, likely, there were elements of all three, but since I can't be definitive and going beyond Scripture is the very thing that Paul is telling Titus to stamp out, here are a few thoughts about what we can say about how we ought to respond to any kind of false teaching whenever we encounter it in whatever form. So point two there on your handout. We'll move more quickly. What should be the response to false teachers? Paul gives Titus two principles that are perfectly balanced. Two principles that are perfectly balanced. The first, there on your handout, they must be silenced. They must be silenced from verse 11. You see, whatever the false teaching was, it was widespread. Verse 10, many rebellious people. Verse 11, they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not teach. And so they must be silenced. Now don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we should relish or enjoy doing so. In fact, people who love to silence others are just about as dangerous as the false teachers themselves. But if we don't, our inaction will harm others. Our inaction will harm others. I don't need to list all the modern day examples that we're so familiar with. Situations where a zero tolerance policy is the only way forward. Paul is saying to Titus, false teaching is contagious and it spreads. And we all know what it means for entire communities to be contaminated by an outbreak. So on the one hand, our response should be they must be silenced, but at the same time, in perfect balance from verse 13... Paul says to Titus, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply so they'll be sound in the faith. The balancing principle is that the goal of a rebuke is to reform those false teachers. The reason why I have bolded on your handout from verse 13, both the words rebuke and sound in the faith, uh, is because they're a reminder of the type of elder whom Titus is to appoint. From verse 9, one who can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute, literally rebuke, those who oppose it. And yet there are still limits to such warnings. Any forbearance is not endless. Over in Titus chapter 3, verse 10, printed there on your handout, Paul says to warn a divisive person once, warn them a second time, but after that, have nothing to do with them. Well, Paul concludes this section uh, with a reminder that, and here's the blank for you to fill in at the bottom, belief and behaviour always go together. Belief and behaviour always go together. Come back with me to the passage one last time, to verses 15 and 16. We didn't get to this before, so we'll get to it now. Verse 15, Paul says to Titus, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. 
belief and behaviour always go together. Which is actually what we saw in the very beginning of the letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, printed there on your handout, knowledge of the truth is what leads to godliness. Knowledge of the truth is what leads to godliness. And actually, that's meant to be a terrific delight and encouragement for us. Knowledge of the truth will lead to godliness. Now, that's what I think Paul was referring to in verse 15 with that phrase, to the pure, all things are pure. To the pure, all things are pure. Because belief and behaviour, both good and bad, they always go together. Well, let me try to draw it together then with some practical suggestions about how we're to respond to false teaching. This is on the right-hand side of your handout at point three. Some practical suggestions. I want to acknowledge this has not been an easy passage to speak about, or in many ways an especially uplifting topic. But I do hope you can see how important it is. Paul certainly thought Titus needed to hear. And I want to say that even if we don't have these problems now, and I praise God that I've never seen any of these things during my time at Trinity, still, we need to be alert. So, three brief suggestions. All there on your handout. Firstly, never downplay the devastating effect of false teaching. Never downplay the devastating effect of false teaching. Without labouring the point, we must never gloss over the damage that false teaching causes. I said earlier, we have members in our church who have thankfully escaped from cults. But it takes years to heal. And some consequences can never be undone in this life. I spoke a few months ago with a member of this church from another gathering. He told me how one of his parents, uh, his, one of his elderly parents was invited to a church that unashamedly preached a type of prosperity gospel. Uh, the one where you hear them saying, God promises you untold blessings in this life if you show your commitment to him by, a bit of a conflict of interest, giving your life savings to our church. Can I say, it's a tragedy. She is now destitute in her retirement. So never downplay the devastating effect of false teaching. Which means, second suggestion there on your handout, please be willing to speak up. Please be willing to speak up. Remember verse 11? They must be silenced. They must be silenced. And so that asks the question of us, how willing are we to speak negatively if we must? Because what we say we stand for is only given meaning by what we are willing to stand against. What we say we stand for is only given meaning by what we are willing to stand against. I'll give you an example. John 14 is a verse much beloved by Christians, particularly in a time of grief and loss. You know the verse, John 14, Jesus says, promises his disciples, I am the way, the truth and the life. What great comfort that is to hear. And yet the thing is, it's only half the verse. Because the second half of John 14 goes on, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
that's much less palatable. That's much harder to speak of in our modern context. But what we say we stand for is only given meaning by what we are willing to stand against. Now realise that this idea is hard. It's very difficult, particularly in our modern day culture of tolerance, where my subjective experience defines my reality in such a way that you must not only accept, you must also proactively endorse me in it. And if you don't, I'll troll you as a hater or as a bigot. Speaking out for the truth is in our modern day the unforgivable sin. And it will not make us popular. But please don't keep quiet. Please speak up. Because it really does matter. I'm so thankful that uh, years ago when I was still working on campus, an ES student president, who I afterwards calculated was about half of my age, took me aside after a talk and in a very gracious and discreet way rebuked me about something that I had said. Now, if you'd like some insight into how we've ended up in our society at this particular cultural moment, uh, can I invite you to check out the recommended reading, uh, which I've listed there on your handout. Like each week, I'd like to give you an extra resource to pick up, mostly because we can't cover everything in a 30-minute sermon. Uh, I'd just like to draw your attention to Carl Truman's brilliant new book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, a Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. He, tra he traces the movement in Western society over the last three to 400 years that's brought us to this point where we can say that there is no such thing as absolute truth, only how I perceive it. My point is that our wider society's wholesale rejection of absolute truth, it invariably seeps into church as well. And so actually it occurred to me that, believe it or not, Mother's Day is the perfect opportunity to remind us of the need to speak up, of the need to patiently correct, and to graciously rebuke where necessary. Why do I say that? Well, because we all know that the best mums don't just dote on us, they also discipline us. The best mums don't just dote on us, they also discipline us. And I presume they do so in a way that our Heavenly Father does for us all. Above all, we must remember how God's grace alone is what can change our hearts and transform us and make us more, go more godly. And that's such an important idea that we're going to spend all of next week on it when we get to chapter 2. For now, just look at chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, these verses there that in many ways sum up the only way in which we can ever change. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Never downplay the devastating effect of false teaching. Please be willing to speak up. Thirdly and finally then, always test the doctrine 
of our teachers. Always test the doctrine of our teachers. Now, as I've said already tonight, um, not understanding every part of scripture actually calls for leaders who will be humble. Humble as we all sit together under the word of God. But what that also means is that the hearers have permission. In fact, you have the obligation and responsibility to resist any leader who tries to say, you must do what I tell you to do. Here at Trinity, we will do our very best to make you never feel beholden to the church leadership. Or perhaps, dare I say it, to an uncle or an auntie in an elder honour culture, if that's one that you come from. We'll do our best to make sure you never feel beholden to the church leadership. And that's because you don't answer to us. Actually, one day you'll answer to Jesus for your actions. And when you do, you cannot justify your behaviour with, oh, my pastor told me. That's the reason why, as you know, I'm constantly urging us to, there on your handout, be like the Bereans. Be like the Bereans so you can know the truth yourself, even though, quite frankly, it's just easier to sit back and be spoon-fed. Acts 17, verse 11. The Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. If that's how they treated an apostle like Paul testing what he said against the word of God, how much must we do so for any leader today? So I talked earlier about that ES student president who once took me to task. Can I say, I am also so thankful for the member of another one of our congregations here. Uh, this is a lady who without fail emails me after every sermon I preach asking me about my interpretation of the passage. I see your smiles, but here's what I want to say. Oh, that our whole church were like that. I get that my inbox is about to become very full overnight. <laughs> but we are to test what is said against the scriptures to see if it's the truth. Now, of course, you're probably thinking, well, how do we learn to spot false teaching? How will you recognise falsehood and untruth when it's there? My answer, my answer is that you'll know it when you see it. You'll know it when you see it. You remember that phrase? To the pure, all things are pure. Over time, you will get to know the truth so that you can immediately and instinctively recognise a fake. Uh, you probably know that, right? That's how the FBI trains its agents to spot counterfeit currency. Uh, the way they do it is that they make them look at thousands and thousands of copies of proper currency until, on instinct, automatically, they can tell when a fake comes into their hands. Because knowledge of the truth is what leads to godliness. And that's why we spend so much time in God's word. All right, and take a couple more minutes. What I'd like you to do is look at the discussion question down the bottom. I'll give you two minutes 
just to turn to the person next to you and you'll see there a question for you to discuss. What practical steps might you take this week to grow in your knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray that in this week ahead and for all the days of our lives, you might enable us to grow in our knowledge of your truth, which alone can lead to godliness. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.